On today's episode of The Data Show, my guest is Jana Eggers, CEO of Logix, a company that takes artificial intelligence technologies and techniques and brings it to enterprises. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Welcome to the O'Reilly Data Show. I'm your host, Ben Lorica, here today with Jana Eggers. She is the CEO of a company called Logix, and we'll go into what Logix does during this episode. But uh, welcome to the data show. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Ben. So let's start with a little bit of your background to introduce you to our audience. So I know that you um, have described yourself as having worked at Los Alamos on AI-related topics. So what was that about? Yeah, it was a great time. I actually worked in a mechanical electrical engineering group, and specifically we did I was a theoretician doing some work on the computational maximums, uh, sorry, the conductive maximums of uh, certain polymers. So we were looking for plastics that would conduct as well as metal. And to do that, we used um, both some traditional neural nets as well as some genetic algorithms. So I got exposure uh, to both in that early stage. This is, um, gosh, now it's almost 27 years ago. This, this is for reals? This wasn't a prototype? This was actually used in some kind of production? Yeah, it was actually used, which was exciting. So uh, my boss and I uh, were the theoreticians in a very applied group. So we had um, actual scientists that were, they were chemists that were using the output of what we came up with and actually seeing how they could um, modify those polymers and get them to conduct better. So why live? Uh, why uh, leave uh, basic science and go to business? Uh, the short answer is that I was raised by a banker, <laughs> and <laughs> why? While it was very exciting, and I loved, and I, I still, I've always said when I retire, I'm going back to Los Alamos and doing tech transfer because it's a place that um, was really, uh, amazing, magical. It was an incredible, um, opportunity. And I'm so glad that I got to, and I have such respect for scientists, um, uh, and, what so many scientists across the world are doing. But for me, I really, I was working on a project that was funded, um, for 30 years. And while I felt like what I did was very important and I, and I was very applied as, as we talked about, which was exciting. And I could talk to the scientists every day. It was a very collaborative environment. Um, I still didn't have that pressure of a bottom line, which, you know, my father really, I got a checkbook when I was nine years old. Um, and you know, I was really taught that there is this idea of, um, you know, a way to make a business work. And I missed that. And uh, so I really wanted to be on the business side rather than the research side, which is why it was a hard decision. Don't get me wrong at all. Um, and something that uh, I think is one of the reasons why I've always kept on the cutting edge of technology is because I like that that research idea and the idea of we don't know the answer, but we're going to figure it out. So I, I really left to do business. So that's interesting. I was... Uh... My parents were chemistry professors, so I went into academia first, and then I realized, you know, I really like to work on things that are shorter term and uh, things that more people can understand. So I uh, ended up deciding to move to industry, but uh, my path was easier because when I 
this made that decision, there was already kind of an exit strategy, which was uh, the Wall Street quant route. So how did you go about the, what was your uh, transition? <laughs> wow, you're asking some great questions. So this is funny too. I ended up at a place that I call my halfway house. So um, I could have, and I did look at that, that Wall Street route because I think you're exactly right. There's, there's a lot of scientists that go that direction, um, particularly the kinds like me. I was a mathematician and computer scientist, so that would have been a, a natural transition as well. But I found this crazy little company um, here in, in the Boston area, and they were doing optimization for the trucking industry. And what's crazy is some of the same algorithms they were using to model freight transport were what I was using to model electron transfer. And so we immediately had this understanding of each other that I think I was surprised by and they were surprised by to say, wow, this is some real science that's going into something as basic as, um, you know, the diesel and dust of trucking. So you described when you were at Los Alamos, that was an era when AI was the province of mathematicians, physicists, and computer scientists, right? But then at some point, you you started uh, detecting uh, kind of a broadening of the community. So when around what time did this happen? Well, it didn't really happen until I I think from my perspective, and obviously you know there's tons of stuff going around the world that we all don't see. But I I would say that it it was. Um, there's a couple of shifts that happen. I think there were some specialized areas like what I was talking about. We, we built expert systems for optimization. And I think some of that was happening in the 90s and, it, and it's related to the next shift that happened. And that was really about compute power because we could afford to um, buy machines. Uh, at the time, they were wrist stations or, or spark stations um, and actually build a business around those. But the bigger shift happened with the internet and really commoditized compute power. So I'm talking about you know being able to spin up the compute power that I had at Los Alamos that cost millions. Um, and I literally mean just cost my group millions, not cost, you know, the lab cost tens of millions. Um, but we can spin that up now on AWS or the you know similar similar platforms for hundreds of dollars. So so that commoditization of compute power, and then the second thing, which didn't happen earlier, um, was really the data availability. So with the internet, the internet brought uh, you know what you've seen and what you've seen happen is both text and and it's becoming more audio now, but text for sure, and uh, pictures, which allowed us to have a lot of um, more capabilities to do some testing of these algorithms. So this is where you had people like, you know, Jeffrey Hinton, um, Yashua Bengio, people like this who, who now had access to a lot more data than they ever had before and cheap and easy um, compute power. So those are the two things that, and I, I'd say that didn't really happen until, you know, 2008, around in that time. Um, and then they were allowed to get to some breakthroughs, 2010, 2012. And now you, now actually you, you, your, your point of view is that, that now we actually need more uh, people from other disciplines, right? So we need to 
broaden kind of the people who are building these AI systems? Yeah, what I think is exciting is that we have made some um, pretty incredible advances uh, just in the last five years, like I said, um, in AI. And I do think it's, um, it's time now that we need people outside of the sciences. It's understandable enough. The impacts of it are clear enough that we need people like more product managers being involved. We need people, we need the ethicists. You know, I always say, gosh, we even need lawyers um, uh, to start getting involved and, and think about what we're implementing and, and what it actually means and how it expresses itself. So is UX going to be important for these systems? Absolutely. I, I think that's a good analogy, and I've used that before, so I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. Is um, you know, I, I remember the day, because I'm old enough, that UX was not really even part of the team uh, for software developers. Um, if you needed that, the pretty pictures could be layered on on top later, right? And um, it was really just about how did the system work? And, you know, obviously, we all think of uh, the huge impact and that it should and does have these days and how UX is a critical part of the team. Um, I see it the same way that we need to start bringing more people like we brought UX in and, and it became such a core part of the team. I don't think we have that with machine learning as much. We still have a lot of engineering teams that are the ML teams that just provide access um, to whatever ML algorithms they have and they don't have a full team wrapped around that. Um, which you need. And you even need it if you're just providing APIs. You need someone who's thinking about what is this, you know, what what is the UX, even if that UX is exemplified as an AI, I mean, sorry, as, a, as an API. You need someone thinking about how is this going to express itself and what's the best way to help people use this very effectively and for the right problems. I mean, I think with our black boxes, sometimes we get people misapplying um, uh, machine learning. So as you talk to companies, because uh, your company is basically uh, promoting AI in, uh, into other companies, um, what is the reception to the term AI as opposed to data science and machine learning? I think it's still early stages. I mean, I wouldn't say that there's any particular um, uh, reception. I, you know, and I'll there's, also there's say not, that there's not a lot of CTOs saying we need AI. <laughs> um, you get, I'll be honest, you get a little bit of that, but most of the time, what's happened, at least with who who contacts us, they've done their research, so they usually have uh, a bit of a framework, and they're they're thinking of you know, what kinds of problems might um, apply well to to machine learning? Why do we need this? I mean, I think there's a lot of them that have asked already, like, what does this mean for data science? And what does this mean for, um, you know, our own platform engineers, if they have those, they're, they're really trying to figure out kind of what's next, and how do each of them fit? together. So I, I'm actually, in general, very impressed with the level of research that people are doing, even if it started out with someone saying, we need to get into AI. I, I would say that happened um, more a year ago, we would get the calls where people say, well, we just need to do something in AI, tell us what you think we could do. And now we're getting much more of the, 
we've been researching, we think we understand you do this, and here's the problem we think it might apply to. You know, I, I have a sense that uh, uh, many more companies will self-declare as being AI companies. And the reason I say that is some of the uh, kind of the uh, model companies in, in the data space have, have done that, right? So Google, Microsoft, and even Salesforce recently has declared itself kind of as an AI company. Uh, it's funny you should bring that up. I'm getting ready to, uh, probably tomorrow morning, I'm going to have a blog post out. Um, we were just working on it. You're, you're going to laugh at this, but we, um, I, I said, I was asked by a reporter last week, you know, what are the buzzwords, um, in, in AI, uh, that are bothering you? And I said, actually, it's it, one of them is AI itself. I won't lead into the others, so you'll be curious what they end up being. But AI is one of them. And I said, you know, so many people are glomming on to that. And I feel like we almost need, you know, just like uh, Certified Organic <laughs> came well, out. Like, uh, we, I would say less, let's say uh, six years ago, just like big data. Yeah. And, and I don't think we, you know, really got into, and I think that's still a problem too, right? We never, we never quantified what really is big and what's big to one person is small to another. And that could be okay too. Um, so, so I think we haven't, we haven't really clarified what AI is and it's hard to, uh, identify, but we came up with a nice little logo for once we can certify AI we've got a good logo that we're going to put out in the running for it. So your company, Narrow Logics, describes itself as an AI company. So then uh, how do you describe Narrow Logics? <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's another great question. And trust me, you know, we're still a startup. So, so we, have a, we have a lot of those discussions. And um, one of the things that we say is we're synaptic intelligence. And the reason why we chose that in particular is um, the synapse is the connection between um, two neurons in, in our brain or in our body, really. And uh, that's how those neurons communicate. And so an important part of what we're doing is deciding the strength of things and how they are associated to each other via that strength. So to us, um, our, our artificial intelligence is based on some neuroscience research. Um, that's its foundation. And thus, we go with synaptic intelligence versus artificial intelligence. Um, however, we do have those other aspects which people very understandably expect from an artificial intelligence company, which is you have to have the ability to learn. So we have to take in new data. And, uh, and be able to make those shifts. And, and one of the questions with, with many AI companies is, how quickly do you shift? And that really depends on, on the environment that you're in. So sometimes you want to learn, but you want to take a longer time period to learn. And sometimes you want to be very responsive. Um, so you really need to understand the problem for something like that. So, so we, we typically describe ourselves in... Um, the specific features that we have. So one of them is it, we're associating information so that we can provide recommendations for what's the best recommendation um, for an action to take in a situation. And the other big differentiator that we have is um, the ability to tell you why. 
which a lot of traditional um, AI and machine learning platforms are more of a black box. And they don't have this ability to give you an idea of why is this answer coming out. So those are two, two of our big differentiators. And we could talk about more that get into more of the finer grain. Like I said, how you we learn you, you differently. Just, you just need to reverse engineer 200 million parameters and you can find out why a certain thing is happening. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Which is not that easy to do. Um, so... You talked about, I think, um, ability to learn. So I think uh, kind of that pattern recognition and being able to do perception. But I think in the traditional AI world, they have things, uh, modules for reasoning, planning, knowledge, those kinds of things, right? So in other words, uh, uh, a chatbot might be able to detect your question, but it has to have access to knowledge, right? Exactly, exactly. And those are, that's a, uh, an important, um, it is an important distinguishing uh, capability for uh, systems because they have to be able to, to um, uh, incorporate information from, you know, where do you start, right? Are you starting with a blank slate? Are you starting with some abilities and what are those abilities and do those abilities end up being limitations? So um, some animals, for example, are very hardwired, um, how they're going to act in an environment, whereas humans, think about humans, we can't even feed ourselves when we're born, right? And a, a, dog, a dog knows to find its mother's teeth and, you know, they'll crawl around and do that, but we don't, we can't even do that. We have to be picked up and brought there. And um, so there's differences in how our brains are wired. Um, and some, some insects, for example, are just wired to do one thing. Um, and, and so that ability, you know, where you have to think about what is um, for your machine, what, it, what are the parameters, what are you giving it to start with? Um, and is that going to end up being a limitation later in its life? Yeah, and then there's also the notion, I think, that, uh, uh, and people are grappling with this now, the notion of efficiency in terms of learning, right? Because uh, one of the objections if to deep learning is that it requires too much labeled data. And now people are, are trying to find ways to do semi-supervised learning where you have just a little bit of labeled data and a lot of unlabeled data. Exactly. How do you get it to, to label itself? Um, yeah, you're hitting on one of the, the big P. I mean, you know, we talked about earlier, why has AI grown so much just in the last five years? It's the availability of really what is labeled data, right? Right. So now it's this big question of how do we go to a solution where there isn't labeled data or where we can figure out what the labels are with um, reasonable and good accuracy. Or that uh, we can get going, not that we don't need labeled data, but we don't need as much. Exactly, right. exactly. And, and where we're not um, hurt by the biases of that data, right? And we've seen that happen too. 
So we we have there are plenty of examples, and you know you talk about things like um, AI being used for granting mortgages, and it has the biases of the data that it was provided, which is when we approved mortgages before. Yeah, and there were biases that humans did that we don't want the machine to learn. So how do we teach a machine based on past experience when that past experience had you know something bad in there that we want to correct? Yeah, so there's the whole fairness and transparency, right? So, it, which is kind of related to one of the things that you talk about, which is uh, not underestimating the complexity and and having some in-house expertise, so that you kind of know how to tweak or uh, understand the systems that you're coming to rely on. On the other hand, uh, there are now more and more of these cloud services where you can just make API calls to uh, whatever, uh, Google or Microsoft, right? So where they expose some of their AI capabilities to you and uh, all the complexity is, resides with their software as a service. Yeah, and that that it 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 definitely makes me nervous, which is why I, I tell people that, you know, make sure that you're not just saying, here, I'm going to pass my data into this black box and whatever comes out is the answer. Um, yeah, we, don't you have, know, we don't have a single data scientist on staff anymore, right? Yeah, that's not really, it, it's funny that you say that because we do get often um, asked, you know, if it's not, if the data t science team isn't involved when um, when someone brings us in, we're quickly bringing them in because the data scientist team knows the data the best. And to us, they're one of the perfect um, users, directors, product managers of our product. Um, so to me, I think we actually, um, and, and machine learning in general, not just us, but machine learning in general actually is something that, uh, you know, these, the data scientists have the keys to the kingdom are you for sure, it. But are, you, are you sure this is not just the case? of a data scientists protecting other data scientists from getting automated away? <laughs> well, I don't consider myself a data scientist, so I don't think that's the case. Um, so, you know, the reason for me is the data scientists are typically the ones that have looked at and considered the data. They understand um, that even provenance of the data, like where did this come from and how was it used? They're used to working with the data and getting a really strange result. And then when they dig into it, they find out that this data was wrong in some way, you know, it was garbage, right? Because somebody started using that field for something completely different. And so the field was overloaded and half the data goes this way and half of it goes that way. So I just say that the reason why I believe that the data scientists are so important is because they're so much more used to thinking about the data and what it means and what it can lead us to. So there are those people that can help us the most with things like um, the bias and understanding results that come out and helping us know when we are in a good situation and when we're in a bad situation. Yeah, kind of, uh, they're the ones who've who are used to thinking of that end-to-end -end pipeline. Exactly. Um, black box. You mentioned black box. And, you know, one of the things I think that uh, I kind of don't like about deep learning uh, is that, that it's somewhat of a black box. Not that the other algorithms are not, but uh, uh, 
it it is somewhat of a black box. I guess that people will say, well, the brain is is kind of a black box. But in reality, in industry, people want uh, take comfort in explanations, right? Yeah, I I completely agree. And this is actually, I will tell you, one of the reasons why I joined Neurologics is because having used those situations, remember, I I was using um, AI back in the the early 90s, and I was then trying to explain to chemists what they could do to take this information and produce um, a, a better material that was more conductive. Well, that when it's a black box, I have to make guesses. Like you said, I'm trying to reverse engineer. Well, why did it come out this way? Well, I provide a different set of data and it's different. Well, now that I make comparisons on that data and trying to figure out that way, and it was really cumbersome and difficult. And so what I saw the team had done here was really have a keen focus on how can we um, uh, produce a why for these results? And you'll notice when people give you recommendations, think about, you know, I'm recommending this restaurant to you. In general, you're going to ask me why. And the human brain, while like you said, sometimes it's a black box, more it's not a black box and we just don't ask the question. Sometimes you ask the question of why and people say, oh, you know, I don't really know, but let me think about it. And then they'll start giving you, well, what were the things? You know, when I walked into that restaurant, actually, it smelled like my grandmother's cooking. And I love her and I love her cooking. And it just made me instantly go back to my childhood. And even though the service is crappy, I'm just now realizing I couldn't get over the fact that it reminded me of my grandma's cooking. Right, right. Right. And you get things like that that you kind of don't even realize until you stop and think. And so your brain, I would say, is actually and I've learned a lot about neuroscience joining here, um, much less of a black box than we uh, give it credit for. Um, And just like a black box or software in general, the brain can sometimes go haywire and uh, there will be bugs. So you also talk about uh, uh, the need to expect bugs in these systems. Absolutely. The example I give there is Kasparov and and Deep Blue. And, um, you know, when when uh, he lost the famous chess matches, um, it was really a bug in the software and it chose a move randomly and because it didn't know what to do. And he was trying to figure out what it knew that he didn't. And so this is not to say whenever it gives you something that's counterintuitive, dismiss it. But it is to say you should be able to question and start figuring out, like understand the data that went in. Where did it come from? Why did it do that? Can you do a smaller problem and get a similar answer that also surprises you, but you can track down more? So, again, it could be right, but don't just accept the answer and realize that it could also be wrong and you need to understand why it's wrong. So earlier, you mentioned that uh, in many of your conversations, you actually talk to companies who have done some research already, who are somewhat aware of what uh, you folks do. But uh, have you ha- had to do much education in terms of uh, companies who are starting a little further behind in terms of how did they embrace these AI technologies? 
Um, I would say that we don't have to do a lot of education. Um, again, and maybe that's just there's a filter that people don't come to us until they're a bit more educated. Um, I definitely do a lot because I love it and I want to get more people involved in, in the AI. So I do a lot of talking that I would say, you know, isn't separate from NARA because obviously I'm always a representative of NARA logic. Um, but it is a passion of mine because I think the time is right now for us to get more people involved in AI. And I think the sooner more people get involved in it, the better AI is going to be. And, you know, it's very much to me, it takes a village type of thing, not just a few specialists. Uh, and actually that worries me more than anything is that it's controlled by a very few number of people and not understood by a lot of people. So um, I do that on my own. As far as our customers, I mean, yeah, we usually give people, we'll tell them, you know, look this way, you know, go to this conference. I'm very excited about what O'Reilly's doing um, in the AI conferences. I think there's a lot of academic AI conferences, which is great. And we love to go there and benchmark and see how we're doing there. But I also think we're missing some of the business AI conferences. Um, and so it, it's, I think we make recommendations. And, and by that, I don't mean the kind that we do with our software, but we, we give people some ideas of things to look at and consider on their specific problem. But I wouldn't say we spend a lot of time educating people. Yeah, and uh, for our listeners, Jan is actually on our advisory committee for this inaugural O'Reilly Artificial Intelligence Conference, which is taking place September 26th and 27th in New York. And uh, in fact, she's giving people tips on how to scope an AI project. So you want to give us a little preview of your talk? Yeah, I'm going to go with um, some experience that I had kind of both with what did enterprise software and implementing enterprise software look like 20 years ago um, from the AI or expert systems is what I was implementing um, before at my halfway house, as I mentioned. Um, and, and then, you know, looking forward now to what do I see with our customers and what are the differences there? What are the things that they should watch out for and, and think about? Um, as they do that and uh, hopefully give them some tips for how do they get started? Because I know that it's still very early stage, despite the fact that, you know, I'm dealing with people every day that are implementing these. I know that we're just at the at the very early stages. These are these are really the, um, you know, the the bleeding edge users right now. So is there any particular vertical that stands out in terms of uh, being early adopters of AI? I mean, obviously, the uh, financial services sector has always been a very aggressive in, um, in, in computation and trying new things. They're, they're always pushing the envelope. Um, the major internet players, again, because they got access to a whole bunch of data and how do you then use and leverage that data to improve things both for your business as well as your customers. So those are the two people who have probably done the most, but there's a lot going on. You know, robots and AI go hand in hand. So manufacturing has been another yeah. big place that has used AI. And then you hear a lot. I don't know. I think a lot of it might be hype at this point, but in health. And then I think one space we don't hear a lot about, uh, which wouldn't surprise me if they did a lot of AI, is uh, defense. Uh, yeah, I could probably talk about that a little bit, but I can't. 
Uh, yeah. <laughs> so obviously intelligence is big there and, and knowing things, especially young and emerging is really important in that space. And I think, you know, the, the help is a, is a big one, particularly in the area of um, natural language processing um, and going beyond that. And you mentioned it earlier, going beyond the not only do you have to understand the question someone's asking, but what's the answer that I should be giving them and how we can do that better. Um, so I think you get a lot of people that worked in the NLP space that are um, really coming in and solving some some great problems. I'd say that marketing, um, I would have expected marketing to do a bit more. I, I do feel like marketing is a bit handicapped from the data science side. So there's so much that has gone into the data science of marketing that, you know, I, I find a bit of what they're doing is more closer to the data science side than the actual AI side. And I'm surprised there aren't, there isn't a bit more going there. You know, I, I think you brought it up before. There's a lot of companies that are trying to add um, AI to their repertoire, but it's still kind of early. Yeah, I think in that space, I would say CRM, particularly chatbots would be the, the thing that stands out. But the other vertical I was talking about was healthcare. You read a lot about it, but, oh. but I'm not sure that uh, there's anything that really stands out, right, at this point. Sorry, I heard help, not health. But yes, you're exactly right. I think that um, you are seeing some there. That, that's one that I will also say... Um, there's some nervousness about. I mean, you know, I still want my doctor who knows me, um, that whole diagnosis. Now, there's a lot of cool stuff going on in the um, imaging space, right? and they're getting some pretty incredible results with uh, the computers being able to, you know, on the radiology side, see more than the humans can, um, going to a finer level of detail and getting some pretty, pretty great results there. So I do think there's a lot... I, totally agree with you. There's a lot of opportunity in the, in the healthcare space. I think it's one because of the data, the privacy of the data and all it, it's unfortunately going to move slower than it maybe should. And I don't mean that like forget the privacy side, because that's not what I mean at all. I think we can handle both the privacy side and make the advancements um, there, but they're also very conservative because of that. All right. This has been great. Uh, thank you, Jana. Thank you, Ben, and thank you to all the listeners. I, I look forward. I hope that uh, people have uh, uh, learned, and if they want, reach out to me. I'm always happy to talk to people about their experiences um, and, and get more people excited about AI. You can follow Janet Eggers on Twitter at jeggers. That's J-E-G-G-E-R-S. Thanks for joining us. If you like the show, you can subscribe to iTunes or Stitcher or TuneIn.com or SoundCloud and never miss an episode. <laughs>